welcome to Galaxy Brains. Hey, this is the weekly podcast for Galaxy Research. No intro wrap today because I am traveling. I'm in Miami for the Bitcoin conferences. There are actually several. Um, it's it's a good time. Look out for some content from us on our next week's episode. I'll have more about what went down at Bitcoin 2023 in that episode. This week, though, we're checking in with Christine Kim from Galaxy Research to talk about Ethereum's finality issue that happened last week. Had a lot of people concerned. Um, she pours some uh, some water on those fears, I think, in a good way. Um, explains to us what happened. We'll also get an update on the current staking environment on Ethereum from Christine. And of course, we'll check in with our good friend Bimnet, a BB from Galaxy Trading, as always, to talk markets and macro. But before we get into all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer on the podcast notes and note that none of the information contained in this podcast represents investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Hey, we got the old theme music on. Uh, I love the way this track sounds. I've always loved it. I've never figured out how to rap well on this beat, which is why we use it when there is no rap. Um, Phineas is there in the studio keeping me uh, legit here. Let's just get right into the show. Let's go to our friend Bimnet Abibi uh, from Galaxy Trading. As always, my friend, great to see you. Thanks for having me. So what is going on in markets? I'm a little bit out of the loop here, man. So just bring us up to speed. It's Wednesday, May 17th. Tell us what's going on. Uh, stocks are ripping. Um, S&P broke through you know, local resistance. NASDAQ is close to trend highs. Um, a lot of the price action, um, you know, today at least, has been driven by optimism um, around the debt ceiling. You had, you know, McCarthy and Biden both uh, give press conferences um, where they indicated that, you know, they're uh, sort of more optimistic um, outlooks, and the market took that well. Um, on the rate side of things, you've had a pretty meaningful sell-off in rates. Um, that's largely been driven by a lack of sort of uh, of pessimism and sort of concerns around the banking system. Uh, financials were, was the best performing sector today um, in the S&P up, you know, almost two and a half percent. It started with um, one of the distressed regional banks um, this morning, um, highlighting that they, you know, they gained a couple billion in deposits. Obviously, you know, they, they gained them because they, they offered competitive rates. But nonetheless, it showed, you know, strength and resilience uh, within our banking sector. And that caused, you know, uh, price appreciation there. Um, and, you know, some of the, the, the froth in terms of Fed cuts, you know, be, being taken out of the market. So, you know, folks are generally now thinking that, that things are less bad th than before. Um, <laughs> um, and more broadly, you know, between debt ceiling and a lack of like, you know, insane financial stability considerations with, with, with banking, you know, that's broadly good for risk assets. And so, you know, I think that's why you're seeing um, stocks trade well. Um, in addition, um, you've kind of had uh, a resurgence in the dollar over, over the past, you know, I want to say week, week and a half. Um, Euro dollar basically, you know, tested up against, you know, 111 or like 11080 and, and rolled over. Same thing with cable. Um, dollar yen's been, you know, perking back up again. And so, you know, as the the concerns around, you know, U.S. growth and financial stability and, and as you've gotten that rate cut pricing um, a little bit more, uh, manageable and uh, not as you know pronounced um, that's led to a reasonable bid in, in in the dollar and that makes sense because you know a lot of FX is driven by you know front-end interest rate differentials so big picture we've had constructive things uh, for stocks uh, the dollar um, and rates have have sold off um, and then in crypto uh, you know it's 
kind of doing its own thing right now. Uh, but I would say the the tether announcement today was was insanely meaningful um, in, in my view. Um, the announcement being that they are going to use fifteen percent of uh, operating profits um, and and use that to to purchase Bitcoin outright. Um, right now, where uh, you know where things stand, they are the single most profitable business in crypto, making a, a billion and a half dollars a quarter. Um, to give yeah, people wow. some context, I think you know MicroStrategy has a market cap around three and a half billion dollars, right? So literally in uh, a couple of quarters, like two and a half quarters, uh, Tether could buy all of MicroStrategy, right? That's the magnitude wow. of the money they're making, and it's really That's efficient. Really like context. no, no, like no overhang, and as long as their AUM stays, you know, where where it's at, you know, they're going to be printing a lot of money. And God forbid we we even put some growth assumptions on on their uh, AUM, right. And their interest right. margins, and, and then you're you're really flying. And so you know, I think where it stands right now, the math gets you to around two hundred million bucks a quarter of, of, of BTC buy pressure. Which is pretty good, um, and I th I think that's a constructive headline um, that can help you know Bitcoin in the near term. I would say kind of you know form a base with stocks trading really well and us having come off of you know thirty thirty one k. You know I definitely think that you know you you're, you're kind of close to you know where I think that this last leg of this sell off is is going to stop. Um, you know I think initial support is around. 24 5 25 you have some some other stuff in between there and mm -hmm. um but with stocks rating this well with bitcoin taking back 27k today um you know i think that there's a reasonable chance that you know you're, you're kind of bottoming yeah um, yeah this near-term sell-off may have run out of legs or something yeah That's, it, it, it tether... looks like it's it's lost a little bit of momentum yeah the tether uh announcement mm -hmm. is interesting and gosh, I, we have to remind our, our listeners, like Tether is, it's a great point you made. They are, they are the biggest business in crypto. Yep. Um, they're, they've just been printing money hand over, not to use it, you know, uh, no pun intended, but hand over fist with the rise in interest rates. And they're also, they've, they rolled almost like, whether, you know, coincidentally out of things like commercial paper and heavily into U.S. debt, um, you know, starting about a year ago. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Right. As it happened. Um, so they're, they're earning a lot of money on those treasuries. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's a great sort of company in the standpoint that they're, they're not even levered, right? Like they're just, you know, all those profits just, just, you know, go back to, to, to equity holders. And it's not like MicroStrategy that, you know, bought Bitcoin on, on debt that they issued. This is like, I'm buying Bitcoin with the profits that I'm generating from my business that yeah, very literally different. probably only needs like five people and a couple of like outside counsel law firms to run uh you know crazy, the, the, the essence of what they're doing is just you know simple money market stuff it's uh i i, I pay i pay no, my liabilities cost zero because i pay no people zero interest and i have assets that give me you know five percent right now so it's an unbelievable business model it's incredibly scalable because it's in the most liquid market on the planet which is you know the front end you know treasury market or the front end money yeah. market and so it's highly it's scalable highly profitable and now that business is actively going to be accumulating bitcoin i think that's a very constructive development yeah wild um you know they're circulating supply of tether it hasn't quite breached its prior all-time high which it's was at 83 before. billion now. i mean what what like it's, when yeah it was like 83.8 83. i'm just saying okay. i've been following right. waiting to do the to do the chart but yes it's exactly 
it has basically risen throughout, uh, you know, it dropped a ton. I think there was a point last year, um, Charles, you on my team wrote a great report about this, how they had redeemed something like $12 billion in eight days during the like big, you know, the initial like drawdowns from Terra and, and et cetera last year. But basically since it formed a bottom last June <coughs> or July, Tether supply has just been marching up and it's, and you've now seen particularly after the, collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and and circles, you know, issues with briefly not being able to redeem because yep. of that um, mm-hmm. circles supply has been declining while tethers is going up. And, and it really is this crazy story of I view it as, you know, what happens when we don't have a, a clear, you know, pro America policy agenda for stable coins in the US. You know, you get companies offshore like tether that can operate fully unconstrained and they're making it taking advantage of that no absolutely i mean tether should be a u.s-based company that's regulated by the u.s um and you know it's it's a no-brainer i mean stable coins are incredibly efficient and you know provide a source of you know like u.s debt buying and like you know which we help like dollars (laughs) yeah you know sort of don't we need that badly? Haven't global central no, banks and sovereigns been like slowly, slowly though, they've been slowly coming off for years, right? I'll like you know, I'll give you an idea. I mean, like every time, like yeah, every day that bills roll off, I think like the average T-bill has like $80 billion, maybe like 120 or 160. And so there's like a, the entire AUM of, of Tether is in like one T-bill in the u.s uh and so like like yes it would help like if like it tether became like a 500 billion dollar thing but at the you know when you have a huge balance sheet like the fed does and you're talking about you know financing you know a deficit that's two trillion dollars and you know national debt that's 32 trillion so it's It's just a a kicker it's It's not in the bucket yeah Um, it's a kicker it's not going to move the needle but it's but it's nonetheless positive on that side too correct i guess um, um, anything else that you're watching uh, in the next uh, week or yeah, so? I mean, you know, I think I mean, uh, I think high level, the, the market just got very ahead of itself in terms of cut pricing um, here in the U.S. I think the risks are a little bit more two sided. The data that we've seen so far, I mean, like unit labor costs, employment cost index, like the labor wage stuff has been really robust. The, the services inflation has been, you know, pretty robust. You're actually starting to get a reasonable uptick in commodity prices, you know, after um, a fall over the past couple of months, like oil is back to $72 and, you know, some other commodities are, are starting to, to, to rebound a bit. We've also seen uh, a rebound in, in, in rentals, um, you know, the Adobe price index recently uh, that, that came out highlighted that, you know, I think in for the month of April, groceries were up like a, a percent. And so there's a, still a really tight labor market and there's still inflation. And the 500 basis points of hikes that the Fed is engaged in, like, is barely making a dent. And the U.S. is still 300 basis points away from its inflation target. And, you know, the the idea, like, the, the whole, one of the sort of, key things about monetary policy is that you need credibility not just like in the moment but you need like future credibility um because let's say like the front end is really high because you know you know the, the u.s is keeping you know overnight rates high like if the world starts to imply that the fed's going to cut like in the back end dramatically or in six months from now or nine months from now that is the exact opposite of what the fed wants that loosens financial conditions and so 
um, you know, for the impact of, you know, of the interest rate rise to, to actually feed through to the economy, you need to have a market that buys into the idea that we could be higher for longer. And so, you know, you're going to be in a situation where the Fed is basically forced to communicate that that strategy and where they're forced to continually um, strive to, to maintain their credibility. Right. Think about this. The market started to price in emergency cuts in July um, after the Fed hiked uh, most recently, right? That is to say that the market's like, I, I get it, Powell. You just came out on national television and told everybody you're hiking rates even though our banking system looks like it collapses. We think you are so stupid that you will for, you will go the other direction in your yeah, next meeting. Yeah, you'll have to eat those words right? in just like two that, months. That is what the market <laughs> tried to do. And so yeah. it shows you the like lack of credibility and the huge amount of uncertainty um, in the market as well, and also just some mm -hmm. of the the just the liquidity that has broken down in this market just because of how violent you know some 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 of these recent moves have been. Um, and so you've got a Fed that is staring at data that's still really strong, uh, that's dealing with with a, a credibility issue and. Uh, maybe a banking crisis at the at the same time. Again, manage. not a job that I want yeah. anything to do with. Um, and so, well, good. you, you know, if monetary policy here. was just set in advance, like 21 million tokens or something, you wouldn't have to worry about this. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I'm being silly. Bibnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, my friend, as always, thank you so much. Pleasure. Anytime. Let's go to our friend, Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. Christine, how are you doing? Doing well. How are you, Alex? I'm great. And I, I was really excited to talk to you uh, this week because of this interesting issue that was happening on Ethereum last week that had some people very worried. I think it turned out to mostly be a non-event, but you're going to explain it to us. It was this, uh, the, the Ethereum consensus layer unable to reach finality for two different sort of hour-long periods, I guess. What happened first and then i'm going to ask you what it means <laughs> yeah i mean during i think during those two days because it happened twice on thursday night and i think it was friday um there was a lot of questions a lot of of activity on twitter people kind of freaking out saying that ethereum broke down um which really was not the case but yeah let's break it down um the first thing that i think is is useful for understanding uh, what happened is if we understand what finality actually is. So when we say that finality was delayed, we don't mean that people were unable to send transactions on Ethereum. We don't mean that the network was um, offline for a period when people, when applications weren't running. Um, all of that was still happening, but um, the 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 checkpoint that the network uh, creates, which is called finality, um, where all transactions that have been finalized up until that point um, are considered to be extremely hard to reverse. So finality, like the term suggests, does it, it's basically a point where you can consider all transactions up until that point virtually immutable. And this is really helpful for exchanges and rollups because they, when they're settling very large amounts of value, they want to have confirmation that the transactions will be reversed. So finality on Bitcoin mm. is very probabilistic in that it's up to the exchange how many blocks you want to wait. Um, but on proof of stake, it's uh, for Ethereum's proof of stake consensus protocol, it's it's a pretty uh, clear cut. Um, it's a very clear cut um, process. You know, after two epochs. It's like a binary state. Yeah. It's either final or it's not. You're right. It's probabilistic with proof of work. Okay. So um, 
And then what happened then? So the the network, the, the the nodes, when we talk about the network not being able to reach finality during these periods, are we saying that the validators couldn't agree on finality or they, what happened yeah. exactly? So two clients, uh, Prism and Teku, are, are they're not the, the super majority of clients, but they comprise, I think, roughly maybe around half of all nodes um, on Ethereum, those two nodes were having difficulty processing old attestations. So attestations are votes from validators about what the head of the chain is. And every time they were receiving an old attestation, they were basically trying to verify that attestation by replaying chain state. And that's very computationally intensive. Like generating kind of like the entire state of a chain at a certain point back in history, mm -hmm. um, cre created a lot of CPU load on these nodes. And so these nodes couldn't process new attestations when validators were trying to progress the chain. Um, Prism and Techly were having difficulty. Um, and so that's why you had a period of delayed finality because these nodes weren't processing their attestations correctly. Luckily, Teku and Prism basically adopted the same solution that Lighthouse, which is another client that also has about 30, if not 40% of of popularity among validator node operators. Um, the way that Lighthouse handles those old attestations is if the old attestation doesn't contribute to the fork choice rule, they just drop the attestation. Like they don't replace the state. They don't try and verify that old attestation at all. And so basically the 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 release, the new fix that was cut by Prism and Teku basically a day after I think less than 24 hours um, after the the bug was identified on Friday, um, the the fix was basically to to adopt that same logic, that same um, yeah process. So they were just getting bogged down with work that technically didn't need to be done at all. And that was preventing a large portion of validators from actually like doing the work on the actual chain tip that had to be done to reach finality. I guess. Yeah. One of the devs called it kind of like a pseudo DDoS attack because it was a, a, like an overloading of, of what the nodes were supposed to do so that they couldn't do their proper work. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the, the root cause of it, of why these old test attestations were running around in the network, um, you know, some people had, had assumed or had, had speculated, was this, you know, an attack? Was this a malicious actor that was, you know, propagating these old attestations? And the more devs were, inv are investing in, and they still are, um, they actually have a call tomorrow. We're recording this on, on Wednesday of May 17th, mm -hmm. but there'll be a, a call tomorrow on, on May 18th. We'll, we'll talk more about this, but, um, devs were, were, the more they investigate, they um, understood that what actually caused these old attestations was likely the Lighthouse client. The way that they um, reconnect to the network after if they accidentally disconnect from the execution layer, which is the layer on which smart contracts are executed, transactions are executed, if um, certain nodes like the Lighthouse client, when they disconnect from the execution layer, the way that they reconnect is by propagating these old attestations. And apparently one of the causes for what was going on was, was this activity. Lighthouse nodes were, were disconnected and when they were reconnecting, they were propagating old attestations. And it's a very uncommon experience, but developers think that that's what, uh, what caused this um, to happen. And one of the one of the interesting things that Terrence said on a Bankless podcast um, today was that, you know, with the amount of people that are on the beacon chain today, like 600,000 active, active validators, the test nets that Ethereum has um, for the beacon chain are just not large enough to replicate certain mm -hmm. 
on-chain events because testnets are around 400,000 active validators. And second of all, with Shanghai, the influx of new deposits, staked ETH deposits, was also not something that developers had really been able to accurately replay or anticipate on testnets. So I think it's it. all of this really goes to show that the Beacon Chain is a new consensus protocol. It is a new living um, network, like a new living blockchain that is in the wild for the first time. And proof of stake as like the transition to proof of stake only recently got finalized with Shanghai. So I think it kind of makes sense that as it starts to become more widely adopted, um, you you have these like unforeseen issues of like, we didn't know that the network couldn't handle old attestations in this way for Prism and Teku. I think that's really well explained that I, th- I feel like I get it. Thank you, Christine. Um, okay, before we move on, because you mentioned the staking stuff, we're going to get into the deposits and withdrawals from uh, uh, of staked ETH. But let's talk just quickly about the implications here. I guess during the finality, these outages or lacks of finality being achieved, um, what is that downtime? Was the network down or like what was the user's experience during those times? And is this a problem going forward in the future, you know, for Ethereum broadly, or or is this sort of like a not a big deal? So what end users experienced during this time of delayed finality were slightly higher gas prices. I think the average was it was high, slightly higher than the daily average, about 120 guay instead of like 100 guay. Um, and then slower block times. So block times are usually 12 seconds, but I believe certain block times because of delayed, uh, because of the issues that these nodes were experiencing, were not able to propose blocks for up to something like a minute. Um, so the the really the impact on end users was very minimal. People were still able to send their transactions, but you know they their transactions were processing a little bit longer than usual. They had to pay a little bit more than they did. Um, but network activity continued to, to operate just as normal. Um, really, I think the biggest impact was on exchanges and rollups that depend on finality for um, transactions in that, you know, if an exchange is, is transferring a large sum of value, they're not going to mm. want to start to to also process transactions on top of that large tra- transfer until they know that first transfer was complete. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the issue, right? Because when you talk about finality, like, but I guess what it was a short enough amount of time. Theoretically, we're talking about there's a risk that the chain would like roll back to some prior state, so you exactly. could like get caught and a double spend of some kind could happen, right? But like, why wasn't that a? That sounds like a big deal to me, right? But like. Is it because it was a short amount of time or because in reality, like, like, could you have double spent during this time and like made use of this as an attack vector? Or is this is somehow is that not how it works, basically? So if the exchange had, um, you know, sent that amount of money and then done multiple transactions on top of it and those transactions got reversed because finality hadn't been confirmed on the network, um, then the exchange would... Um, have to reverse certain transactions on their front end to the users. Like that would definitely be a problem, I would say, for an exchange. But like there's no evidence that there was any kind of rollback no. during this period of lack of finality, right? So like nothing actually did happen. But like how it, it theoretically could have, is that what we are being to- like, is that the issue? But it, it didn't though. Like there was no block that was undone, right? No blocks were finally, undone. Finally they did. And finally they did all become final in that same order that they should have, right? So right. it was fine. And I think that also comes to the point of why we don't think this was done by a malicious actor or nefariously. And, and the reason why we emphasize, you know, the, the, 
importance of finality for exchanges and rollups is just to illustrate um, why we have that mm-hmm. checkpoint in the first place. Um, and I will say that that people who are kind of perpetuating this narrative that Ethereum um, was down, there was an outage on Ethereum, is kind of over-exaggerating um, exactly how long of a period the delay in finality was. Um, People, the validators that went offline and actually experienced the inactivity leak, which is this penalty that kicks in um, when the network sees, you know, a a very large majority of of validators um, go offline and the network isn't able to finalize, the network kicks in to to penalize validators and try and and reach finality. Um, But when that was happening, the validators that went offline, on average, lost about a dollar. Really? So really, it's it's built to penalize way more under way bigger circumstances than the minor inactivity leak that happened, is your and point. Penal- it was a minor... Yes. And the penalty yeah. increases the longer Ethereum is unable to finalize. So the fact that only about like a dollar on average per validator got lost, <laughs> that means that finality wasn't delayed for that, for such a long period of, yeah. of time that the network thought, you know, we're going to have issues with with. Um, like longer term issues of say if it's a seven day waiting period for a rollup like an optimistic rollup that has a seven day fraud proof window and your network's not able to reach finality for seven days that's that's another major issue that's but, a big deal yeah, yeah but we didn't get there you know it was really like right. um, yeah like a day max well and when you think about it your point about Bitcoin I mean I think most exchanges now do like about a three block uh, they wait about three blocks but the convention used to be to wait six blocks before can um, just because if you look at Bitcoin's um, like orphan block stale block history like there's there hasn't been like a three block reorg in a long time mm. right but everyone used to wait six blocks which by the way is an hour on average <laughs> So it's like ETH, you know, being, you know, not reaching formal finality um, for an hour, I guess it wasn't too big. Would have been a big deal if we saw some kind of blocks get unrolled, right? Like in, in the end, if the chain tip ended up being different than where uh, everyone saw it, that's a literal reorg. There was no reorg, so it was just a slight delay in certainty, I guess. Exactly. A slight delay in certainty. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about stake teeth. No, I like it. I think thank you. I came up with that on the spot. Um, no, you just taught me. I appreciate. It. I know our I know our audience does too, because um, I didn't know what to make of it. Uh, you know, and I don't think a lot of people did. And I like the wording. Um, I'm happy they got to. That's yeah, like I'm happy they got to the bottom of it. Mm, yeah, because for a while, for a couple of days, people couldn't. I mean, not us. I certainly couldn't figure out what was going on. But like devs were unclear as to exactly what happened. Yeah, exactly. I, I think there was really a period of time when. Um, so Preston was on on the Bankless podcast was talking about how um, the last yeah, time Preston Van ha- Loon, right? Yes, from the Prism client team. Um, he mm-hmm. was talking about how in 2021, uh, Prism was the supermajority as they were like 80%, 90% of the network and they were unable to produce blocks for some mysterious reason and they couldn't figure it out for three days. Um, So when he heard that mainnet stopped finalizing in like today, basically, not today, but like last week, um, he was very concerned, you know, that uh, it would take days to figure out the root cause. But it sounds like developers have it pretty much mapped out um, and, you know, were able to to release those fixes less than uh, 24 hours after mm-hmm. they identified what was going on. Let's talk about staked ETH. Um, this is your, this was a huge topic. It's, I guess, is it now it seems like kind of mundane in a good way. There was what, after Shanghai Capella went live, there was some outflow, a modest outflow of, uh, of, of validators, but that has fully reversed now. Correct. And now we're seeing just the validators are just 
growing. ETH is pouring into stake. Um, is that what's happening? Tell us what's happening on the staking front. That really is what's happening. I'm I'm shocked myself. I did not expect, you know, such a quick turnaround from the number of full withdrawals and partial withdrawals that we were seeing for deposits to just like completely um, surpass the amount of of both full withdrawals and partial withdrawals combined. On Monday, Lido, the largest staking provider, activated staked ETH withdrawals. They allowed redemptions of their liquid staking token, Steeth, for ETH. And the the number of withdrawals that have been happening and the amount has been extremely minimal, except around 90% of, of what we saw were of Steve being redeemed was from a single entity, Celsius. Um, it appears that Celsius has has been redeeming, is in the process of redeeming their stake ETH um, from Lido. And that appears to be really the largest um, entity withdrawing right now. Um, other than that, we're seeing just large numbers of validators um, staking into Ethereum through Rocket Pool, through Lido, through uh, Frax, through many different staking mm-hmm. pools. So yeah, I would say the biggest withdrawal activity right now is is from the Celsius Lido. Um, is that confirmed that it was uh, Celsius? I saw uh, a lot of people saying that it looked like it was on Etherscan or something, like uh, people were convinced that it was Celsius. Yeah, I think some people were talking about whether or not it was a specific redeemer, like a specific user of Celsius um, trying to redeem their Steeth. That we're not sure about, um, but I do think that it the labeling has been confirmed that it is coming from Celsius. Interesting, um, interesting could possibly stuff. Possibly be you know the company could be a different individual that you know is trying to redeem, but yeah. Um, okay, cool. And so, um, gosh, so what else? Anything else you're watching on Ethereum that we should pay attention to the next uh, weeks and months? Definitely keep paying attention to um, the next uh, preparations for the next upgrade. Um, developers have pretty much scoped out what's going to be going into Cancun. Um, and of course, the main EIP, the main code change going into it is EIP 4844 Proto Dang Sharding. Um, I'm doing a lot of research lately on really getting into the nitty gritty of what protodang sharding is and how it works. Um, and it's very clear to me that lots of the EIPs that are going into Cancun are in some way related to EIP 4844, even though they're separate EIPs. Mm. So like Ethereum's upgrade to SSC, which is like a transaction serialization format, that's uh, what the beacon chain is based off of, but not what the execution layer is based off of. The harmonization effort to to make those serialization formats the same or like upgrade execution layer serialization format from RLP to SSE, that process is heavily impacted by EIP 4844 because if EIP 4844 uses SSE, then the question becomes, should you know the entirety of the of the execution layer use SSC. So these kinds of conversations that sound very technical um, are are things that will definitely impact, I guess, like the timeline and also kind of the risks associated with the next upgrade. So I'd say keep an eye out on on those um, on those efforts. Awesome. Um, well, I'm excited to see how it goes. Uh, the Ethereum, uh, the crypto space now feels so Bitcoin and ETH focused. I do think there are other interesting ecosystems too, but um, you know, even, you know, I'm out and about here in Miami and, um, this week, and there's so much discussion, like with the emergence of ordinals and a lot of people coming back to try to build things. I was at, um, an event called PlebFi, uh, which was like a Bitcoin hacker builder conference. And now sort of like maybe on the backs of ordinals and inscriptions and sort of the developer interest that that is driving now there's all of a sudden feels like there's some more momentum for the other bitcoin upgrades check template verify any prev out 
op vault, something like this, which are, which something along those or at least an opcode necessary to do rollups on Bitcoin. More people are talking about that, too. Really feels like it's sort of a Bitcoin and, you know, not that they're talking about Ethereum here much at the Bitcoin conferences, but that it's it's these are the questions. It's rollups. It's um, it's and it's applications. And I know there's people building on other ecosystems as well. But I feel like just in this macro environment, like, you know, you can't I I even myself find my find it hard to go further down the crypto risk curve and rabbit hole than ETH. It starts to be like I feel like I'm thinking about Bitcoin, ETH, like dollars, gold, <laughs> and rates like this year. It doesn't feel like a long tail. I mean, this is I guess why we're in a it's a builder's market, not a not a uh, you know, it's a bear market builder vibe at this point. If you're beyond the all the investors and, and people I'm talking to are basically like not really doing much beyond Bitcoin and ETH at this point, I guess is what I'm trying to get to. Um, both very exciting ecosystems, though. Yeah. And I, I I will say there's plenty of of still lots of lots of shit coinery happening on top of Bitcoin and Ethereum, though. <laughs> like, even though you don't go beyond Ethereum and Bitcoin, there's still a lot. Plenty of stuff happening in there. <laughs> yeah. Plenty of stuff happening. Those yeah. Two, yeah. On those two as well. Totally. Totally. <laughs> Um, well, it's great conversation as always. Our friend, Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains this week. As always, thanks to our friend, Christine Kim and Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy for their insights. And like I said at the top of the show, remember next week, we're going to have some great content from Bitcoin 2023. Um, and also don't forget, I said this last week, but please check out the Watch This Space report we put out last week. It's on our website, galaxy.com research the 10 major trends in crypto you need to know this year going forward. That's it for Galaxy Brains. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content at galaxy.com slash research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. See you next week.